morning, we're going to continue working our way through the Psalms. Um, last week, Pastor Richard preached through Psalm 14. And Psalm 14 is a psalm that was describing sinners. It, was, it said clearly there, a fool says in his heart there is no God. It was a psalm that dealt with the character of sinners. And then Psalm 15 this morning comes immediately following that passage. And now we're dealing with the opposite. This is the character of someone who is righteous. So last week we see um, clearly laid out what the Bible says about the character of sinners. Today we are going to see what the Bible says about the character of God's people. So if you have a Bible, and I hope that you do, please turn with me to Psalm 15. Psalm 15. There David says, O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart, who does not slander with his tongue and does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord, who swears to his own hurt and does not change, who does not put out his money at interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things shall never be moved. May God bless the reading of his word. David starts out this psalm this morning by asking a question. He asks an important question. He asks a question that we should all be asking of ourselves. He looks um, and he, uh, to God and he asks God, who will sojourn in your tent? He asks, who will dwell on his holy hill? So you'll recall the concept of sojourning in the Old Testament. To, to sojourn is to live somewhere, to live in some land with a people that is not originally your own. Think of Jacob and his family uh, going to Egypt during the famine. They, they left their land, they packed up, they went to Egypt uh, and moved, moved in with Joseph, who had, provide, who had, who had uh, the wisdom to save up food and provide uh, for the people there. Um, and in Genesis 47, Joseph's brothers say to Pharaoh, We have come to sojourn in your land, for there is no pasture for your servant's flock. For the famine is severe in the land of Canaan, and now let your servants dwell in the land of Goshen. All right, so they're, they're sojourning. They're leaving the land they were in. They were sojourning in Egypt. We, we see the same thing in Ruth, right? So Elimelech and Naomi decide, uh, this is not working here. We're not going to have enough food. Let's go to Moab. So they pick up and they sojourn to some place they think is better. Uh, in Leviticus, we see rules and regulations spelled out uh, all over the book for people who are sojourners with Israel. Um, this is, this is a very common idea in Scripture. People pick up where they are, and they go to somewhere they perceive is better to live, to dwell, to, to, to stay somewhere, um, somewhere that they think that can better sustain their family. So when David says this, right, we, we kind of have this background of, of what physical sojourning is. He takes, he takes sojourning in the physical uh, realm, and he says, okay, let's apply this to spiritual realities. So he says... He asked God, who can sojourn in his tent? Who can pick up where they are, where, they're, uh, where they are now, and move and take up residence with the presence of God? When he says, who can sojourn in your tent, it's, it's a thinly veiled allusion to the tabernacle, God's presence with the people of Israel. So 
he's asking, Lord, who is it? Who is it that is able to? Who, is, who, who will you allow to come into your presence? Who will you allow to come into your tent forever? Who will you allow to dwell on your holy hill, Mount Zion, the presence of God? Who will you allow to come and stay with you? He, uh, he asked the question that we should all be asking. God, who are you going to allow to be with you forever? How can I be in your presence forever? Uh, this is one of the most fundamental questions we can ask. Right? We have God who has revealed himself to us in the person of Jesus. He's given us his word. He's given us his law. And he's clearly told us what happens uh, in eternity for those who break his law. So the question we should be asking ourselves is the same question that David is asking here in scripture. scripture. God, how can I be with you forever? Who is it that can be with you in your presence forever? Who can be in the presence of the Lord? It is the one, and he unpacks this here, it is the one whose life has been forever changed by the grace of God. We see this manifest itself a couple different ways in the psalm here. So in verse 2, we see the first thing, that the person that can be in the presence of God must love God. He must love God. Starting in verse 2, we see the character of the individual who loves the Lord, uh, the, the one that can be close to him. The psalmist lays out three things. He says that he who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks the truth in his heart. All right, so let's unpack these three things uh, one by one here. Um, one who is blameless. All right, so, so let's understand what he's saying, uh, what this does mean and what this does not mean. Um, it does not mean sinless. We see in the Bible, um, we see the Bible describe people who are blameless. Uh, Genesis 6, Noah is described as, quote, a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Well, was Noah sinless? No, no, no one has gone through all of life, save Jesus, uh, sinless, right? Noah was not sinless. He fails just like everybody else, but he was blameless. He, he, was, he was humble before the Lord. He was seeking to do the will of God. He was repentant of his sin. Job, Job is described as blameless and upright. David even is described in 1 Samuel 29 as blameless, um, and for all the great things we know about David, the writer of this psalm, we know that he sinned grievously. David committed murder and adultery. David was one of the worst of sinners. So we know that blameless does not mean sinless, but it does mean a general characterization of your life that is not pursuing sin, a pattern of your life that is not pursuing sin. Someone who is blameless seeks to follow the Lord. They, they humbly submit to the Lord when they sin, they turn back to the Lord in repentance. So, so someone who loves the Lord is blameless. The second thing he says is someone who loves the Lord does what is right. So again, this is a similar character trait to what we see in blameless. It's somebody who generally is characterized by making good decisions, making decisions to do what is right, to do the right thing over the wrong thing. Those who love the Lord will obey the Lord. Jesus said this himself, right? John 14, you are my friends if you do what I command you. 
Those who love the Lord obey the Lord. One commentator said, No child of God is a worker of iniquity. His habit is to do what is right. I think he's right. There, there, there is a pattern. There's a general characterization of a, of a life of a Christian, somebody who is blameless, somebody who does what is right. And then finally, he says he speaks the truth in his heart. So here we see a very close tie, a very close connection between what you say with your mouth and what you truly believe, what your convictions are in your heart. If we're speaking the truth in our heart, we are really, truly believing the things that we say, the things that we claim that we believe. There, there is no hypocrisy. There is no double life. There is no uh, double-mindedness or two-facedness here. But there is a love for and a conviction for that which is true. Those who love God love the truth, and they deeply embrace it. We see this kind of language all throughout the New Testament, too. We see Jesus say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Uh, those who embrace truth with full conviction and who speak truth with their mouths have no discontinuity. They're showing no discontinuity between what they say and what they believe. All right, so, so these three character traits the psalmist lays out here, blameless life, doing what is right, and speaking and embracing truth are to be an outpouring uh, or, or a characterization of what every child of God looks like, of what someone who will dwell in God's tent, that is what their life will look like. These three things do not save you. We are saved by the grace of God alone. They are not the effectual cause of our salvation, but they are marks of a life that has been changed by the grace of God. You are unable to sojourn in his tent. You are unable to dwell on his holy hill without being changed by the grace of God. If you do not love God, you will not embrace righteousness. If you, if you do not love God, you will not do what is right. And if you do not love God, you will not embrace and speak truth. So how about it? Is this true of us? Is this true of you? Someone look at your life from the outside and say, that person is blameless. Someone look at the television shows or entertainment that you take part in and say, that person loves God. Would someone look at the actions that you uh, go about with your friends and conclude that you always choose to do what is right? If God looked deep at the convictions of your soul, the, the, the truth that you really truly believe, would he say there's a disconnect between what you say and what you believe? These are, these are real questions we should be asking ourselves when we encounter a passage like this. David's asking eternal questions. David's asking, who will dwell in your tent? Who will be on your holy hill? And the alternative to that is an eternity of punishment in a real place called hell. These are real questions we should be asking ourselves, and the answer to these questions we should be able to use as a test. Look at our lives. Do, do I love God? If I love God, these things should be true of my life. And if they're not true of my life, why? Can I look back on my life and say that these things are true of me? 
It's not what makes us right before the Lord, but it is a clear diagnostic test of our life to determine if we have been changed by the grace of God. Uh, We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. That's unmovable. But that's never alone. That results in a changed life. Who can be in the presence of the Lord? It is, it is the one who has been forever changed by the grace of God. In verse 2, David summarizes the character traits of a person who loves God, and then he goes on in the next three verses um, to run through the character traits of a person who loves others. A person who loves others. Who shall dwell in, uh, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy, oh, holy hill? And in verse 3, he says, Uh, It is the one who does not slander with his tongue and does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up reproach against his friend. All right, so here he takes kind of the opposite approach. In in verse 2, he says, these are the things that your life should be like. In verse 3, he says, these are the things that should not characterize you. These are the things that should not be true of you. If you're going to sojourn in God's tent, you shall not slander with your tongue. This is a timeless sin. Is it not? There is nothing that shows more contempt for your neighbor and a lack of love for him uh, quite like slander. This is speaking an untruth or a twisted truth about somebody uh, in order to harm that person's reputation. The motivation could be trying to get ahead in your career or to exact revenge on somebody who did wrong to you. Um, doesn't matter what the motivation is. It, shows a true lack of love for a person who was created in the image of God. Um, And David says that someone who is engaged in that type of behavior will not be and cannot be in the presence of God. Uh, So so, so if slander, if talking bad about someone does not fully encompass uh, doing harm to somebody, then the next uh, clause does, he he says, the the second character trait that blankets all of these actions around us is... um, we should do no evil to our neighbor. This, this covers it all, right? This, this covers all the harmful actions around, uh, to people around us. So murder, theft, adultery, all the, all the big hitters in the second half of the New Testament are covered by doing no evil to your neighbor around you. And, and beyond that, we see Jesus unpack these things in the New Testament and show that it's not just the actions doing to them, but it's the heart attitude behind it. So murder, murdering somebody is showing hate. Well, hate in your heart is the same sin. We see uh, jealousy of our neighbor or lust uh, for our neighbor uh, unpacked as heart, heart attitudes or heart sins um, that are, are, are doing evil to our neighbor. This, this command uh, not only points uh, toward action against our neighbor, but as Christians, we should be, we should be thinking, okay, what, what's the opposite of this? What's the opposite of doing evil to our neighbor? It's not enough to not be the thief. It's not enough to not be the dude that's bludgeoning the Samaritan on the road. Um, certainly, we, we shouldn't do that, but we, we shouldn't be the priest and we shouldn't be the rabbi that walked by on the other side and do nothing, Right? So Jesus made it clear if we're going to love our neighbor as ourselves, it involves not just refraining from doing bad to them. Certainly that is what is in view here. Do no evil to your neighbors. But it is also loving them in self-sacrificial ways. Uh, It's not enough for us to not slander our brothers and sisters, but we should be showing them love, actively showing them love. 
And then he, he goes on to say that we're not to take up a reproach against a friend. The NIV um, renders this, cast no slur on a fellow man. So similar to slander, it forbids spreading an injury, uh, injurious report against somebody close to you. Uh, John Gill summarizes this well. He says, A good man does not raise any scandalous report on his neighbor, nor will he bear to hear one from another, much less will he spread one, nor will he suffer one to lie upon his neighbor, but will do all he can to vindicate him and clear his character. How opposite is that from the way that we typically will act? When you hear some uh, juicy rumor or report or something about a coworker, a fellow student, one of uh, the people that you know down the street, um, do you stop the conversation? Uh, typically, typically we don't. Typically we want to hear what, what the gossip is, what the rumor is. This should not characterize us. This, this should not be uh, something that can be said of us. These, these are high callings. These negative behaviors should not mark the people of God. David then goes back in verse 4, and he, he reverts to saying, okay, here are the positive things. Don't, don't do these. Verse 3, verse 4, this is what your life should look like. Who shall dwell in uh, your holy hill? He says it is the one in whose eyes a vile person is despised but who honors those who fear the Lord, who swears to his own hurt and does not change. All right, so, so verse 4 is one of the harder verses in this psalm to reconcile with the rest of Scripture. Um, we see in the rest of Scripture a direct call for us to love our enemies, right? We are to love our enemies. He says that a righteous person or someone who will dwell with the Lord is one in whose eyes a vile person is despised. So, so how does this work? How are we supposed to love our neighbor? Uh, is, is, is it only um, if they're not vile? Is it, is it if they cross a certain sin threshold that we need to say, okay, well, now I, I can't love you anymore? Uh, are we no longer obligated to love that individual? I, I, I think what he's getting at here. Um, is the idea about how we fellowship with someone who openly opposes righteousness. So, so even as we love others and we speak the truth in love to others, we do not condone or gloss over character. We do not compromise our own character and support them in their sin. We, we don't do this for the sake of getting ahead or gaining in social status or even simply looking cool and fitting in. Uh, we don't embrace a cause or uh, embrace a, a vile and wicked person um, in that way. So, so bring this into our context. Um, think, think about how you present yourself on social media. It can be very tempting to try and fit in with your friends. I, I, I've been really surprised by how many uh, rainbow-colored profile pictures I've seen out there, even by people who claim the name of Christ. Um, loving your neighbor does not mean you condone or support their cause and it certainly does not mean that you associate with it it brings down the name of Christ and it brings down the name of Christ's church uh, I recently heard of a popular Christian artist speak admirably in one of his songs about Tupac Shakur Tupac Shakur to kids of my generation 
was a vile and terrible artist. This is the guy that said it was okay to mistreat women, that it was okay to live a promiscuous sexual lifestyle, um, to exact deadly revenge on people, and he, in general, glorified uh, a sinful lifestyle. And he touched millions of Gen Xers. So kids like me, guys that are about 40 now, uh, probably heard him uh, their whole life. And, uh, and, and, he, and he, he affected that generation, not in a good way. And when a Christian, uh, when a Christian condones or even speaks of that in a good way, that, that, I think that's what the, what the verse is addressing here. We don't uh, embrace that. We despise a vile person. We, um, we are warned against this here. Everything that he stood for should be despised. We don't cheer him on. We are to despise wickedness. And on the opposite end, then, we honor those who fear the Lord. We look to esteem the same things that God esteems. We um, look to uh, build up or, or, or admire the same character traits that God calls us to. So the meek, the humble, the contrite in spirit, these are the, these are the type of people that should be revered by Christians. I think it's often really easy in our culture um, to point to heroes as we conceive of them. We, we prop up people who exhibit confidence and pride, um, who have physical or mental attributes that we admire. Uh, certainly, uh, watching the Olympics, right? We're, we're propping up national heroes. Um, we, look, we look to sports heroes, we look to actors or actresses, and we idolize them, not because of their good character. Usually, it's because of their accomplishments. Um, we, we try and emulate their mannerisms, wear what they wear, do what they do, um, and say what they say. This, this shows up in even little ways. I, I remember my dad telling me when I was a kid that, that when he was in Little League, everybody tried to, to have their batting stance just like Al Kaline. So uh, people that are much older than me will know what he batted like, what, what he stood like. I, I don't know. So for kids in my generation, it was all about... Alan Trammell and Lou Whitaker, at least, at least for people here in Michigan. So, so I had it down to wearing the black batting gloves and the SSK mitt that exact, you know, was the exact model that he had. Kids today are, are pulling their pant legs down below their shoe when they bat because that's what Miguel Cabrera does. I, stupid, but uh, that's what we do. We idolize people. We look to character traits. We try to emulate them. We try to mimic them. We say, I, I want to be like this person. We prop them up. We worship people. The man or woman of God does not look to the same character traits that the world looks to. That's a silly example, but, but it's true. We're, we're, we're idol factories. We look to worship something. We should look, be looking at the things that God looks at. And to do that, we look to Christ we see in him the things that we should be emulating. We see in him the things that we should be worshiping. Jesus was not arrogant, and he was not proud, but he was meek and humble. He, he was not seeking to promote himself and say, look at me, but rather he was speaking hard truths even uh, when people didn't want to hear it. Jesus was unstained by the world in every way, and, and this is the one that we should be looking to. This is the one that we should be mimicking. This is the one that we should be trying to be like, and this is the one who deserves all of our worship. Next here, David says that he swears to his own hurt, and he does not change. Simply put, he keeps his promises, even when it hurts himself. 
even when it's not in his own best interest to continue to keep his promise. It, it is an honest person, a person of integrity, a person who does what they say they're going to do, even if it means that it's going to bring harm to them. They're not just looking to look out for number one. They're looking to be a person of integrity. They're looking to keep their word. And then, and then finally, verse 5, we see the psalmist end his description, um, switching back to a negative way. Who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? It is the one who does not put out uh, his money at interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent. All right, so, so, so two things here. And, and, and they both apply to how we treat the poor, how we treat those who are not in power. Um, first, someone, it is someone who does not put out his own money at interest. Uh, to understand what he's saying, we look back to Exodus 22. Uh, Moses, unpacking God's law there, says, If you lend money to any of my people with you who is poor, you shall not be like a money lender to him, and you shall not exact interest from him. If ever you take your neighbor's cloak and pledge, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down, for that is his only covering, and it is, it is his cloak for his body, and what else shall he sleep? And if he cries to me, I will hear him, for I am compassionate. All right, so, so in that time, taking out a loan was like a last-ditch effort. Uh, something typically had gone wrong. Crops didn't come up that year, and you were in desperation. Something terrible has happened, and a loan was pursued in order to survive. So this was usually accompanied by really high interest rates. They were, uh, the lender was gouging the borrower uh, in his time of desperation and in his time of need. He was taking advantage of the poor. God sought to protect the poor by limiting what the lender could do. So here we see uh, David speak to this principle. He says that a man of God does not seek to build himself up on the backs of the poor. Rather, he does not charge interest and extort his brother. So similarly then, um, he says the man or woman of God does not take a bribe against the innocent. So he does not perpetrate injustice um, against, uh, against the innocent by taking a bribe. He does not side with the wealthy unjustly because um, he thinks it will be advantageous. This tramples the poor, this, the, the downtrodden, the person who can least likely defend themselves. We are to carry ourselves with integrity and do what is right and protect those in need. David asked the question, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? He unpacks his answer by saying, it is the person who loves God and loves others. This is true, and that is, that is what this passage is driving home. The person that will dwell with God forever has been forever changed by God's grace. William Plummer says that only those who share in communion of the kingdom of glory, who were no strangers to it, uh, only those who will share in the communion of the kingdom of glory were no strangers to it on earth. Uh, this, this is true. All those who have been saved by grace alone are always, always changed here on earth. They, they display these character traits. They look like their heavenly father. So, again, how about it? Are these character traits true of you? Would someone say, looking at you from the outside, that you love others? Would they look at the way you prioritize your time and prioritize your money? Would they look at your life and say, that's a life that's lived in service to others? Or would they look and see slandering and backbiting against those you come in contact with? Are, are you esteeming the character traits of the world? 
Are you esteeming the character traits that God puts forward? Are you looking more and more like Christ? Are you being transformed from one degree of glory to the next? And if not, why? Are you seeking the Lord daily? Are you looking to him in his word? Are you praying daily, looking to him, communicating with him? Are you intentionally placing yourself in a community with believers that spur you on to love one another? If this is not true, we need to turn afresh to Christ. If this is not true, we need to take a true diagnostic look at our hearts. I mean, maybe this isn't true because you have not been changed by the grace of God to begin with. And we, don't, we don't do these things to get better so God loves us. But if we're not doing these things, do we love God? Have we been changed by his grace? Has Jesus affected our lives? If these things do not mark your life, you should be asking the very question David asks here. How can I be sure that I'm going to dwell with the Lord forever. Uh, think of the alternative. The sinner will be punished in a real place called hell for eternity. The man and woman of God will dwell with him on his hill for eternity. And this is what the man of God and this is what the woman of God looks like. David concludes the psalm by saying, he who does these things shall never be moved. So, so, so think about that. He, he's right. Whoever does all these things will sojourn in God's tent. Whoever does all of these things will live with God forever, will dwell with him on his holy hill. He will not be moved away from God's presence. But, but who among us can say this is true of us all the time? Right? Who among us can say this is always me? This is, I'm, I'm confident this is always me. None of us can say that. There is one who accomplished all of this, and he did it for us. Jesus has done this for us. That leads us to our last thing. The final thing the Psalms drive us to do, love Christ. We are to love Christ. There's no one who walks in this blamelessly or perfect, uh, blamelessly perfectly. There's no one who always does what is right. There's no one who always loves his neighbor perfectly who always stands up for the poor, who always fears the Lord. Left to our own devices, who, who of us would be moved? All of us, right? We'll all be moved. We have all sinned. We have all turned away. None of us do good. No, not, not one. We, we read these verses from David, and we should be convicted. We cannot live up to this high standard. We needed someone to do this for us. We see a similar conversation uh, in Matthew 19, Jesus has with uh, a rich young man. It says there, And behold, a man came up to him, saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. He said to him, Which ones? Jesus said, You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, Honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The man said to him, All of these I have kept. What do I still lack? And Jesus said to him, If you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Jesus' answer was the same as David's answer. You love God, you love your neighbor. To inherit eternal life, 
to dwell with the Lord forever, you must love your neighbor as yourself perfectly. None of us can. We are all stained by sin, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together in Christ. By grace you have been saved. The only answer is Jesus. So look here, see again your need for a savior. You cannot do this on your own. You will be judged for failing to perfectly fulfill God's holy standard. Turn to him in repentance and faith, trusting that he has done this for you. And then look to these verses as a reflection of what God's people look like. Who can be in the presence of the Lord? It is the one who has been forever changed by the grace of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, um, Lord, who can be in your presence? Who can sojourn in your tent? Who can dwell on your hill? It is the one who loves you. It is the one who loves our neighbor, and it is the one who loves Christ. Lord, we thank you for your son who has done this for us. God, we pray that we look to our lives and that we try to emulate your son. We pray that we are changed forever by your grace. Father, we thank you for uh, indwelling us. We thank you for changing our hearts. Father, I pray that we um, look to this and understand where we are uh, failing to live up and that we seek to be changed, that we seek to love you in greater ways. God, give us, um, give us hearts that seek after you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.